Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and today I am joined by a special guest, Deirdre McCloskey. Deirdre McCloskey taught at the University of Illinois at Chicago from 2000 to 2015 in economics, history, English, and communications. She is a well-known economist and a historian and rhetorician and has written at least 17 books and around 400 scholarly pieces on a wide range of topics, including a three-volume series on the bourgeois era. She joins us today to talk about bourgeois values, equality, capitalism, and the intersection of faith and libertarianism, and I'm sure we'll get to a whole lot of other questions and, and discussions. Deirdre, thanks for joining us. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm glad to be here, dear. When I reached out to you, I was I felt uh, fortunate that I got a response saying you were able to join us because our mutual friend, uh, Dr. Art Cardin, he says that you've been gallivanting around the world speaking about the bourgeois virtues. Uh, oh, certainly. <laughs> so um, has, has the world improved because you've been doing this? I mean, is it catching on yet? I don't think so. You know, there's this very strong feeling in what I call the um, uh, clerisy, the intellectuals and the professors and the journalists and so forth, that being bourgeois is just a terrible thing. And to add to that, um, uh, sincere, uh, especially um, progressive Christians, um, believe that it's unholy as well to be in the in the business world, and they believe that capitalism is fundamentally corrupting, and so on and so forth. I don't think that's true, but it's very hard to change people's minds. It certainly is. I, of course, we don't, you know, Libertarian Christian Institute. I mean, hello, we're 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 ardent capitalist uh, promoting people yeah. here. Um, yeah, and yeah. We don't think it's true either. In the other this year, I've actually heard two people. Uh, friends of mine who would be considered on the left. They're not. They're yeah. not necess- I don't. I don't think either of them are Christians. But uh, they have used the term bougie uh, as a short <laughs> fir- term, and it's interesting to me that they would use that because they would describe it in a way that was like there's this little bit of endearment to it, as if sure. it's not quite so bad anymore. And I wonder if that's sure. like maybe maybe there's a shift. Like bougie isn't so bad, but we're just going to use that term. Well, you know, the, the, the sort of underlying problem is that your friends are probably in the false position of being anti-bourgeois while being bourgeois. <laughs> I can confirm I can confirm for you that that is truly of the course, case for the two people course, I have in mind, yeah. <laughs> of course, more and more people are um, uh, no longer in, in um, blue-collar occupations and, they're, and even upper blue-collar people are, are bourgeois and and it's it's kind of uh, it's almost uh, psychologically sad for them to have this uh, self doubt and self hatred. So maybe that's why they're being so cute. Yeah. Well, what what did people 
what do you mean by bourgeois? Because I think a lot of people have this sort of uh, idea, and I, it seems that mid- the word middle class isn't quite accurate, even though that might be the best uh, non-French sounding word. Sure, and, and, and as a matter of fact, in English, they use the English the the uh, French word bourgeois before the word middle class was used very commonly. The word middle class didn't, or the phrase didn't come into wide use in England until the um, 1800s, whereas in the early 1700s, it was common to speak of the middling sort, which was the more common phrase, as being the same as the French bourgeois. All it means, actually, is urban dweller of the middle class. Uh, If you're uh, rural um, dweller of the middle class, you're called gentry. And so it, but it, it, the, the the important point is that in the 18, in the 1700s and then much more so in the 1800s, people stopped thinking of being middle class as lower and stupid. Well, there was kind of a split because, as I said, the the clerisy went off in this direction of attacking people in business, but most of the people in the society grew. And I'm speaking of England and even France and the United States and Germany became less scornful, at least, of the, of, of the middle class of the bourgeoisie. And in particular, they stopped attacking the system in which they they worked. A, a um, I, I call it uh, innovism. They they stopped hating it and started to admire innovation. So altogether. It worked out very well for the the rest of us. Yeah, I want to talk about the word innovation a little bit. Um, but there, there's something that when I was reading, I forget which of your three books on the bourgeois uh, era, I was reading yeah. it and somebody was at a reunion once and, and somebody come up and said, you know, what are you reading? What is it about? And I'm like, well, goodness, this is, you know, three inches thick. Uh, <laughs> okay. It's not three inches, it's an inch and a half thick or something like that. And, and I, you know, so my, my go-to thought was uh, a little pop quiz and asking them how, how much has the world improved since 18, yes. since 1800. And yes. um, I, I'll let you tell that because <laughs> what I what everybody thinks is that, you know, we were all happy and yeah. equal and yeah, we were just right. so, you know, we were one with the earth, yeah, uh, you bet. all of that, you know, 200 years ago. And our soul has been ripped away by factories yeah. and industrial. Yeah. Anyway, what's the what's the real yeah, story? We were, we were one with the earth. We were eating it. <laughs> we were sick all the time. We died. We're in it. We were in it. We were in the mud. It, so think of Monty Python version of the Middle Ages. It was just terrible. And since then, since around, say, 1800, when average income in the world as a whole was about, in current terms, about $3 a day, it's now $30 a day, even including the very poor uh, countries. I mean, per person. So it's increased per person by a factor of 10. That's a thousand percent. And indeed, in the countries like Finland or uh, Japan or the United States that have been that have taken full advantage of this um, bourgeois revaluation and and what I call the great enrichment, it's more like a factor of thirty. I was in uh, the 
the University of Cambridge a couple of weeks ago speaking to anthropologists about this and got into a funny discussion with a very famous anthropologist. I won't use his name because it's embarrassing. I said it's a factor of 30. And then I switched to saying 3,000 percent. And he and he stood up and said, I agree with 30. But I think you're exaggerating when you say 3,000 percent. And I I had to be very gentle with this guy. He was a, he's a very distinguished Cambridge anthropologist. His name I won't give. But so it's 3,000 percent. And in earlier times, doublings from time to time, 100 percent would happen. Although in every earlier episode, the world reverted to $3 a day, wherever it was, China, Europe, wherever. But after 1800, it hasn't reverted. It's gone up, up, up. We've had in the United States about 40 recessions since 1800. And in every case, income per head after the recovery has been higher than the previous peak. So peak to peak, it goes up and up and up and up. And this is transformative. It's now happening on a big scale uh, at a much lower level to start with in China and India and lots of other countries. And indeed, worldwide, things like infant mortality uh, and uh, is falling like a stone. Life expectation is rising, even in very poor countries. People are moving out of what um, the great Hans Rosling, the um, Swedish professor of public health, calls stage one. They're moving to either two or three or even four. Yeah. So it's it's a tremendous change, and uh, that's why I call it the great enrichment. You know, when, when I ask people that question, you know, how, how good do you think the world has gotten in the last 200 years? Usually, I the, the highest estimate I've ever heard somebody say is it's doubled. Yeah. And that which would be good, I suppose. <laughs> it is good. I'm in favor. You know, boy, if you, you or I could double our incomes, we'd be delighted. But it's way, way above that. And that's actually a point that Hans Rosling makes, that, that, that people don't realize how much better the world has become, even in the last 30 years. Uh, the uh, inequality, for example, which pe- people are terribly worried about. If you look at inequality worldwide, sort of person by person, it's fallen <laughs> sharply mm-hmm. in the last 30 years. It hasn't risen. Um, if you if you look at the number of people getting along, if that's quite the word, on $2 a day, imagine trying to live in Chicago or wherever, mm-hmm. on $2 a day, that's fallen like a stone. It's now quite a small percentage of the total world population. So, you know, it's, it's as though we're trapped in the 1960s and we're being told that uh, the, the world is coming to the end because population is growing. <laughs> and we've never gotten over that. The, the, the third world people talk about is is rapidly disappearing. Yeah. I mean, it, we've we've seen tremendous growth. I mean, a lot of those gains have been in India and China. And I know you've you're you're predicting Africa is is very close in coming uh, to, yeah, its, to its own it uh, enrichment. In the last ten, ten years, um, sub-Saharan Africa has started to grow. Yeah. What's what is your I have not heard 
somebody from the progressive left, Christian or non, uh, give an alternate explanation for this? Because, you know, obviously they're going to focus on inequality. And to me, that's yeah, just yeah. a distraction. But what they do is they say, well, the improvement and the explanation that Hans Rosling, because I've sent the, the videos that Hans Rosling has done, you know, he, yeah. he has this graph and it's the hockey stick graph and he, he maps and all that. And, and they're like, well, that's just, that's just one little part of it. And there's all sorts of other things, you know, and they'll bring up a few government related programs like, you know, the new deal or unions or that kind of stuff. But I have never heard a comprehensive explanation as to why are we wealthy? Why are we so much better off that even conforms to their, their typical suggestions on how life ought to be in, in the marketplace? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely uh, you're absolutely right. It's a very strange phenomenon. I, uh, I have lots of very intelligent friends on the left, and this is a tremendous hole in their argument. They'll say that, as you said, they'll say things like, well, the trade union movement made us rich. Well, trade unions have been declining in the United States for 40 years, mm-hmm. so that can't be it. Since we've continued to grow, uh, contrary to the statement you often hear, and and uh, you know what, our trade unions in China, <laughs> why they're growing, <laughs> I can assure you that the Communist Party doesn't allow any trade unions, um, and they, they, there are a whole bunch of sort of crazy ideas in the back of their heads. Let's take France, for example, um, a country I admire very much, but but the French left thinks that there's that these bosses, these capitalists, have this pile of money, gold in the back room, and that the employers, the employees, that is, the workers, can keep can keep demanding more of it, <laughs> and and it's it's a completely crazy idea, and the magnitudes are wrong. Mm-hmm. Suppose the bosses had a pile of gold in the backyard room and you were going to extract more by going on strike or protesting or increasing the minimum wage or something. That would only explain maybe, I don't know, a 20% increase in wages if you got all the gold <laughs> or, or say 100%. But that's why it's so important to understand the 3,000% or the 1,000% that we're trying to explain. And if you, if you face up to that scientific fact, and it is a scientific fact, you can, you can, you, you can nibble away at the edges, but in fact, improved quality of goods and services since, um, since 1800 or 1900 makes it even higher than 3,000%. 3,000% is not properly, correcting for improved quality of medicine and uh, for that matter economics well and it is that the sort of thing that you're saying that you can't measure the fact that you know 200 years ago it's either a horse tra- you know transportation by carriage or your feet whereas now it's a tesla versus a honda civic that's right or or indeed you can think of much more radical changes lighting is one that's been measured mm. fairly well i mean now we turn on a switch and we've got Massive numbers of uh, of uh, candle powers going in our houses all the time, um, and in 1800 you were reduced to tallow um, candles, or actually you 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 went to sleep at dark if you were poor, mm. and and, uh, and 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 medicine in 1800 uh, they they bled 
George Washington when he was sick and they killed him. Um, so what's the improvement of medicine since indeed since 1900? So there, and, and those are very hard to measure in a way to, to deflate them, if you know what I mean, to get yeah, down to yeah. um, what the real effect is. And it's very large, and I think it's actually getting larger. Take a look at your cell phone someday and think of, think, think of the point that you don't have to buy a flashlight anymore. Yeah. No one has any flashlights because they don't need them. They have them in their cell phone. Yeah. And so it goes. So, and, and then the, the, but then what people say, and this is a kind of a background, um, or not a background, a backstop, is that we're spiritually corrupt. And if that were so, I would agree with my friends on the left and some on the right, in fact, many on the right, who say that, um, yeah, we've, we've gained the world, but we've lost our immortal soul. And if that were true, I'd, I'd be appalled by modern economic growth. But I would argue that it's, it's the other way around. There's materialism, and there are people who... Who, who don't see that um, their soul and God is more important than, uh, well, on, uh, the, the, the newest um, uh, cell phone. But in fact, on the whole, you're able to pursue the trans, trans, transcendent more seriously if your stomach isn't aching from hunger. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think it, there, there's a little bit of irony. Maybe you would agree that the people who are on the left, uh, you know, declaring that we're losing our soul because of this, you know, corrupting system and yeah. and so forth. Yeah, they're the ones that are there. Yeah, well, consumerism, which isn't capitalism, and yet yeah. yet they're the ones who are so worried about the material well-being of those who have very little. I mean, we'll, we'll yeah, that's right. That's exactly right, and and it's a. Uh, um, and I'm concerned about it too. I want the poor to be better off, but the poor actually are better off. And the engine of better offness is not Christian charity. Not that I'm against Christian charity. I think it's very good for the souls of the people who who give it. And I want to ask Tom up uh, uh, Piketty if I ever debate him what where he put the royalties from his great book about inequality <laughs> did he give them to the poor i doubt very much he did yeah i tithe at my church i had two homeless people in my house for four and a half years okay that's my christian duty to the poor but my underlying christian duty is to the world's poor and i i satisfy it by urging people to adopt this innovism to um, to accept the, the bourgeois deal, as I call it. You let me, uh, bourgeois, invent something or uh, improve automobiles or something, and I'll make you rich. That's the deal. Not bad. And, 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 and it, it does not corrupt one's soul. It doesn't have to. No. No, I mean you, you've talked about uh, the, the the poor have been the primary beneficiaries of modern capitalism. They're the ones who need it. Exactly. Come on, and I I, I think this is a very strong point. Obviously, Lilian Betancourt, who's the heiress 
of the L'Oreal cosmetic portion. She's a terrible jerk, and I and she's the she she's the richest woman in the world. Um, she gets from economic growth an extra diamond bracelet, <laughs> but the poor person gets a roof over her head, or enough food, or an opportunity for her children to go to school. So it, the 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 change in the real condition of the poor from 1800 and 19, or 1900, or for that matter, 19, 1950 to the present, has been just dramatic. Yeah. Well, it, you you wrote in one of your books. You said that it's the the beneficiaries of modern capitalism that is the poor is obscured by the first act of the wealth going to the bourgeoisie. That's right. Which That's okay, right. fine. So you know, I'll make you rich. The bourgeois deal is eventually I'll make you rich. What's, what's happening in the meantime, because that's where I think the resentment ends up coming through and you're right. It's obscured. So where, where's this heading? Well, well, the key thing is entry. If the rich are able to corrupt the government to prevent entry, um, and they, then they try to, there's no doubt about that. Um, then, of then the gain doesn't, go to poor people. But if other capitalists or other um, entrepreneurs or other business people can imitate the success, then it does accrue to the poor. I was arguing at lunch with with, with a friend of mine about um, a Walmart, and she hates Walmart, as so many people on the left do. And I tried to persuade her, I didn't make much headway, that Walmart has been very good for poor people. And it's true that the low margins, some of the low margins in retailing are going to the uh, Walton children, who apparently are not wonderful. Um, Okay, but in the meantime, poor people get to go to Walmart and buy stuff that they need at very low uh, prices. And it's, it's funny because she admitted that Walmart was very good at that, that it was giving poor people good stuff at low prices. And I tried to convince her that that was a good thing. No, no, she says they're, um, uh, they're monopolists and they're, they don't pay their people enough. Actually, it turns out that Walmart pays people more than, car- than comparable de- department stores or grocery stores. That's actually a fact. So it's very hard to change people's minds on this, but it is, uh, I keep trying. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, that's kind of our goal too at LCI is to, you know, help people, especially Christians, make the case that this stuff is, is one, it's more complicated than a simple meme or headline that you see scroll across yeah. your social media is. But second, it, it takes it takes time to, to discuss this kind of thing with people. Yeah, it does. So, you know, only. Only so often can a witty comment help them see the light. <laughs> yeah, I know. And, and and I know this. I've had the same experience myself. I started as a socialist when I was 16. I was a thought of myself as an anarchist socialist. The old joke is that if you don't have if you're not a socialist by age 16, you have no heart. If you're still socialist at 26, you have no brain. <laughs> and. I'm just made it on both scores. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just slipped in there. 
the latest trick uh, to demonize Walmart and for that matter, Amazon with the uh, Sanders proposal, the Bezos Act or whatever it was yeah, yeah. there is, is yeah. that they're double dipping because one, they don't pay their employees yeah. enough. And yeah, then therefore they suggest that they go get government services. And then those same employees use the government services to go back to Walmart. So yeah, I was arguing. I, that's the thing that got my friend at lunch um, got started. She she retailed this um, uh, Bernie argument to me, and an answer occurred to me that the great advantage of being an economist and a historian is that talking to lay people actually can be very enlightening because you think of you you get no ideas. Whereas if you're a chemist. And people don't understand H2O. There's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> You're kind of stuck with the elementary things. But anyway, the the here here's the here's the point. If that's true of say Amazon and Walmart, why isn't it true of every business in the United States? If say you you own a small hard independent hardware store. Why don't you say, look, guys, you can only work 17 hours a week, um, and then you you should go to the government and, and get welfare. It's got yeah, – you see, the argument, if true, it's not true. But if true, it <laughs> it's too powerful in a manner of speaking because it applies to everyone. And there's no reason at all to blame – Walmart or um, or Amazon for this. Now, the fact of the matter is that it's not true. People are paid at Walmart what that kind of worker earns in the rest of the economy, period. Um, that it earns and earns in all respects. That is, if Walmart doesn't pay health um, insurance, um, then the, the, the workers will supply themselves at a slightly higher wage only um, because they compared with a place where they can they can get health insurance um, the, the the wage at Walmart will have to be slightly higher to to, to compensate for that and it's it, it's very hard to argue against this point because it, it's just rather obvious that if people are being abused at Walmart, they will leave and go somewhere else. They'll go to some other job. And Walmart, and especially Amazon, are a tiny part of the labor market. This is a very, you know, let's talk of all the unskilled people in the United States. Well, not completely unskilled. They can read and so forth. But on the whole, unskilled people work at Walmart. And they can go work at McDonald's and and thousands of other jobs. And because they can move, because they aren't, these aren't slave societies we're talking about, at least at the margin, the people who get angry at working at Walmart and feel they're being abused, they'll move. And then Walmart's going to have to pay people more to attract. So the whole business attack on Walmart is, is crazy. And it's it's I, I'm I'm glad you brought it up because that's the argument against capitalism that the workers are being exploited and so on. Yeah, they're being exploited and their income is going up by a factor of thirty. 
Hey folks, if you love listening to our podcast, you may want to check out our monthly webinars. Every month we have a different speaker take a deeper dive into topics relevant to libertarian Christians. If you've missed some of our webinars so far, well, don't worry, you can still download them. Visit our website at libertarianchristians.com slash events. And now let's get back to the show. Yeah, you know, I I can imagine that the the, the, the leftist who might stumble upon this conversation and hear what you just said might might consider it a little heartless to say, well, they're just they'll just move and find a different job because that's not always an option. And I think what you're describing that the this competitive nature of the market and the pressure that other other firms yeah. will put on Walmart and offer better conditions yeah. is it's not something that happens overnight. You're, you're, we're dealing with you know what could possibly be several years or a decade worth of progress. No, it happens overnight because it happens at the margin. Yeah. That is, it only takes, what, 5% of the workforce to be outraged and move to a, another job to bring pressure to bear on the employer who is abusing her uh, employees. Um, the, it's, 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 it's not heartless. It's how the world works. If the milk, if the price of milk is two times higher at the convenience store than it is at the grocery store, and they're equal distances, the convenience store is not very convenient, you go to the grocery store. Mm -hmm. And this kind of entry and exit is the heart of it's the heart of a free society. If you want to choose your religion, you can move. If you don't like Judaism or Catholicism, come become an Episcopalian like me. <laughs> this this moving business is not it, it is not a bad thing. It's it's we, we we move in music tastes. If some band is uh, is one that most people don't like. It won't prosper. People move away from it. So movement is religiously, artistically, um, e economically necessary for a free society. So it's 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 not as if these people are being exploited. They're they're not being exploited. They're they're they they you know I we've all been in a situation where we've been grumpy about our pay. I have for sure. Um, but as an economist and as a, as a, as, as a liberal Christian, as a Christian who believes in free will and the freedom that people can exercise in a free society and not in a communist or a fascist society, I'm not impressed by this argument that, oh, we've, we've got to fix it right now on the job. Wait, see, see, you, you can sort of see what the, what the socialist alternative is, is to bring in the government to force Walmart to pay higher prices. I mean, uh, pay higher wages. And, you know, that, that as though Springfield or, uh, or um, uh, Washington could do a better job than a free society of people moving around can do. 
Yeah, I often will wonder why, if, if it's so easy to just simply have a better business model and pay your workers better, which some people yep. do pursue, then why isn't there a massive yep. move on the left to be the owners of these businesses? It's not like Jeff Bezos has given yep. money to the Republican Party or yeah. like, that's right. it's <laughs> a, lot, right. a lot of the world's wealthy who have, quote unquote, too well, much money are, are all leftists, too. Not all of them, a lot of them. I, pro- I proposed to my friend at lunch that she and I set up a consulting company mm-hmm. to tell all these other businesses that apparently don't realize what Walmart and uh, Amazon, this scam that they're running uh, on the welfare system, and we could make a lot of money to saying to every, <laughs> every employee in, in Chicago, Look, hey, you you pay us a thousand dollars in consulting fees, and we'll double your profits. Well, you know it doesn't happen. She, what her answer was relevant for a Christian. She said, "I wouldn't do that because it's unethical." Uh-huh. And then she said that Walmart and um, and Amazon and so on are greedy. And I tried to point out to her that anyone who buys a dress is greedy. And if if what you mean by greed is pursuing your your uh, advantage in a legal way, yeah. And uh, no, she wouldn't have any. Of it. Well, so somehow, I, I, somehow it's not greedy that 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 all these workers want fifty cents more or a dollar exactly. more. Like, wait exactly. a second. I realize that yes, your life would be yeah. on the margins better than the person yeah. who has a lot. But yeah, yeah. Wait, it only it's only greed when you have a lot of money to start with. That, well, that doesn't follow yeah, they're exactly right. And, and, and greed is a sin. I'm against greed. Yeah. And I understand greed to be prudence, namely finding the, the dress you want for a good price or um, paying your workers what, they're, what they can earn elsewhere um, and not more. That's prudence without other virtues. If you if you have just prudence, then you're as economists are often uh, often uh, um, say, if all that matters is prudence, that's the only virtue. Then and you don't have love or 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 or, or justice or hope, faith, courage, uh, um, temperance. Then that's greed. So it's this unbalanced quality mm. of the pursuit of profit. That is properly called greed and is something bad, and is it is so corrupting. But I don't think ordinary economic behavior, as I said before, I don't believe ordinary economic behavior is so corrupting. And I'm trying to persuade my um, socialist friends that that's so. That uh, and and what's what's disturbing is that they're very willing to go to the government as though the government were not soul-corrupting. And there's a great danger in, in the instruments that the government uses. I'm not against all government, and I think there's a role for government. But the problem is that the basic instrument government has is, um, is compulsion, is the threat to put you in jail, the police, the IRS. You know, so... <laughs> What do you want? Do, do, do you want a society where people are not slaves and free to move? Or do you want a society in which some person in some government office is compelling you to do this or that? Yeah. 
Well, and you also ought to be suspicious of the actions the government takes when you have the ultra wealthy rallying behind it for certain for certain measures to be taken because there's probably not something good going on back there. Absolutely, there's a tremendous. Um, the the uh, Charles Koch is often attacked by on the left as a terrible man, but in fact he's against corporate welfare. And he, I mean, he's, he really is. He doesn't just say it. He puts his money where his mouth is, and he's got a lot of money. Yeah. And he, he's against the very corporate welfare that would make him better off. Yeah. But but the, there's a more deep point here, which is that this free society that we, on the whole, have. I think we we, we shouldn't exaggerate how how um, prevalent. Compulsion and socialism is in our lives. We're we're free to go, you know, buy the dress there, buy the uh, go out of Walmart and go somewhere else. This free society has a correlate in 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 Christian life and theology, and that is free will. God so loved the world that he that he gave us free will, and. Free will has to be free. <laughs> you have to be able to choose sin. If God were to arrange things that we didn't ever sin, that is, we didn't have the choice of going the wrong way, then we wouldn't really have free will. So choice and the ability to um, go this way or that, as opposed to being guided along the path of virtue if he look if are we pets of god mm-hmm. or are we god's children whom he wants she actually wants us to um she she wants us to have a full life a full life of choice so there's a deep homology there's a deep uh, formal similarity between the the theology of free will on the one hand and the economics of a free society on the other. Yeah, I think I think the freedom, you know, the free to choose. I mean, the, the scripture is just, it's all over the place, you know, choose this day whom you will serve, you know, come, yeah. come and follow me. You know, yeah. Jesus didn't drag, didn't drag people along, you know, I mean, he had fishing nets and he didn't grab them and drag them along. That's right. Uh, so I, I, I wanted to refer for just a second. You, you uh, referred to God in a, a female pronoun. And of course, and I, uh, go ahead and uh, explain. Well, explain you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a progressive Episcopalian. So, okay. <laughs> my God is a black female lesbian single mother from the, her ancestors were from the Caribbean, overweight, middle-aged, who lives in Leeds and works at the local um, grocery store. So all you guys ought to get ready <laughs> because she's going to be there when you go through the pearly gates. I, I, I think, <laughs> to be quite quite serious about it, the character of God, you know, just can't be confined to an old man, old man with a beard. Um, we're made in God's image and we're made in all kinds of ways. Fat, thin, black, white, yeah. old, young, straight, gay. So let's be more calm about <laughs> 
the about the character of God. In Genesis, uh, when God made Eve a helper, you know, the word there yeah. is actually used, that word is used throughout the rest of the Old Testament to describe God in relationship to Israel. Is it really? Well, that's nice. I like that. <laughs> yeah. So there, there are a lot of, you know, truth be told, there are a lot of characteristics and qualities despite the overwhelming majority of male, oh, yeah. you know, the, 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 well, 100% male authorship of the Old Testament yeah. that, we, that we can tell. Uh, there's an overwhelming number of times where God is referred to in in motherly and feminine yeah. and feminine attributes. So that that's not really in dispute. Sure. Uh, but sure. I I just wanted to kind of rabbit <laughs> go a rabbit trail. I, I often call myself a sisterly libertarian. My w- way of talking about it is the two versions of the Golden Rule, Hillel of. Babylon, the late first century BCE Jewish sage, put it in negative terms. He said, do not do unto others as you would not want them to do to you. And that's like the non-aggression principle. It's kind of a male, leave me alone um, way of putting it. Whereas Jesus and early first century, first century uh, CE um, uh, person put it in the positive way. Don't pass by on the other side. Be a good Samaritan. Do unto others as you have them do unto you. And I think we need both. I think we need Hillel's version and Jesus's version because Hillel's version resists um, uh, oppression and uh, interference, ignorant interference in other people's lives, which I certainly approve of. Whereas Jesus's version opposes a kind of heartless, um, I'm all right, Jack, attitude of not caring for uh, other people. We need both the male and the female principles here. I want to switch to um, capitalism and the term. You've used the word innovism here and in your writings. You know, at LCI, we have... um, we have our core values and we include the word capitalism. In fact, we had a little bit of internal debate over whether or not we wanted to use the word capitalism. Is it too far yeah. gone? And so we, we, we wrestled with that as an organization and sure. we came out with, you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to go ahead and use it because sure. it's the best word we have. It's worth remaining and it's worth recovering uh, despite, you know, common misperceptions about it. Sure. Um, but you're not, you try not to use that word as much as possible, although I think for your audiences, you tend to use it because that's what they know. You're, they know you're talking about it. But yeah, you've got trade tested betterment. You've got innovism. Yeah. What can, can we uh, market societies, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and <laughs> but, but but the reason to avoid it is not its bad connotations, because you notice I don't avoid bourgeois. Fair, yeah. <laughs> Even though it's got the, more or less the identical bad um, association, so so it's not quite that. Although, of course, I understand that problem. It's that it's scientifically misleading because it suggests, as as the blessed Adam Smith believed, and as Marx believed, and as many modern economists believe, 
that capital is the uh, initiating force in the society and that accumulation of capital is what market society or this trade tested, commercially tested betterment is all about. And that's false. That's that's plainly false, and I can I can give you 500 pages of evidence on the point. Um, it, because because capital is just piling brick on brick, or bachelor's degree on bachelor's degree, and without new ideas, the new bricks or the new bachelor's degrees are going to fall on fallow ground. It's like the it's like the parable of the mustard seed. Um, it. If it falls on, on stony ground, it won't flourish. It's the ground, it's the, it's the ideas that matter. And so what we should be focusing on is a liberalism, a Christian liberalism, as I call it, that gives, the, um, that, that, that gives people permission to have ideas. I, I, economic ideas to open a hairdressing salon when it's needed in the neighborhood, or to invent uh, the the um, air brakes on on, uh, on the railways, or whatever. So it, it's um, it's crucial to get away from the idea that pouring capital into a, a community or an economy is how you make it grow. It's just not true. It's true that capital is necessary, but so are lots of things necessary. I don't know, oxygen in the air, the existence of a labor force. I mean, come on, there, there are an infinite number of necessary things. Yeah. But the initiating force is new ideas. And what's extraordinary about the last two centuries is the astounding number of uh, mechanical, biological, organizational ideas we've had. Yeah, it's it, it's mind-boggling to me to think of an era where the the existence of innovation and new ideas or new, you know, simpler ways to, you know, better ways to farm. I mean, I live in Amish country and I get to watch my literal neighbors sure. do things on the farm that I'm like, you know. I don't even have to give you something that's mechanical. I could probably improve the tool you're using just by, you know, curving it a little I bit know, or doing something I like know. that. And it's hard to imagine that at some point in our history as humans, that was that was looked down upon. You know, that is a nice analogy. I lived um, close to Amish people in, um, in, in Iowa, in eastern Iowa. And, you know, there are the steel tire Amish and the rubber tire Amish and this and that. And, and I don't look down on them, but you're right. There's a kind of a, um, well, in, in their case, there is theologically based resistance to some kinds of innovations. And actually, they're very willing to have innovation in horse breeding. <laughs> but, you know, it's like what uh, Henry Ford was asked, uh, what he thought his customers wanted before the coming of the automobile. And he said, a faster horse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and you're perfectly right that there's a big change which you can see in all kinds of ways in all parts of the society of Northwestern uh, Europe. Um, 
in attitudes towards innovation. I mean, as I, as I point out somewhere in the books, the very word innovation was a bad word really until the 19th century. You can follow its history in the Oxford English Dictionary. Note that before the 19th century, it was about changes in church doctrine, mainly. And innovism was a bad thing. My word, you're, you're, you're changing our belief system. What a terrible idea. But by the 19th century, it started started to be used in this positive way that we've become so accustomed to. In fact, now innovation is kind of a buzzword, um, and everyone approves of it, and isn't it grand? That wasn't true in the in the 17th century. Yeah, I mean, our, our culture lives and breathes innovation. I mean, even people on the left love innovation. I mean, look at Silicon Valley; they're not they're not a bunch of you know hardened conservatives. They think that science is the source of their innovation. And my friend Joel Mokir thinks this, although he and I agree on an awful lot. And I just don't think that's right. I think you need a free society, a society in which the promise of Christianity or the Abrahamic religions um, generally, that God is setting us free to fall on our faces or to reach for, for, for glory. One way or the other, we're free. We aren't pets. We aren't slaves. One of the, uh, one of the recent books that I've read is by uh, Jonah Goldberg, um, Suicide of the West, and he says he relies heavily on, on your work um, yeah. on capitalism. I don't know if you've gotten to read it or not, but uh, I haven't, though. I'm I'm very favorably disposed towards him. I, I yeah. when I when I see his columns in the newspaper, I read them, and they're they're ordinarily they're very insightful. Yeah. Well, he he and I think Matt Ridley as well have one critique of of your assessment of the great enrichment, and that is that so, uh-huh. social about social institutions that that they're not getting their fair share of the credit. Um, have you been able yeah. to act, interact with them, you know, off the page, yeah. or what's your response to them? Yeah, I've, I've spoken to Jonah a bit, and I'm I'm reasonably close to Matt. I see him a lot. I saw him uh, uh, a few weeks ago at a conference, and and I've eaten a couple of times with him in the House of Lords. Did you know that he's a viscount? <laughs> he's a he, he's an aristocrat. Yes, I did know that. Yeah. Yeah, his 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 family have been servants. Of the king since the uh, since the 16th century. Um, well, the, lots of people say to me that oh, institutions are where it's at, and the, 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 there there are a number of problems with this. And I and through the last two of the books, I attack institutionalism, and in in uh, and I've attacked it in in other essays that aren't in the in the two volumes. But just in summary, one basic problem is that institutions are usually conservative. (laughs) So they're not innovative. That's one problem. The second problem is most of the institutions of Northwestern Europe didn't change in the crucial eras between the, uh, say, the 17th century and the 20th century. There's a lot of great stuff 
um, uh, sluggishness in the institutions. And look, the United States had to fight a great civil war to get rid of, of, of one of those those um, institutions. And in any case, the institutions wouldn't do it unless there was a surrounding atmosphere of liberty. Um, it, indeed, if you continued with slavery and the subordination of women and the subordination of poor men, uh, um, as you know, in the early days of our country, um, poor men in lots of states weren't allowed to vote. Um, if, if, they, if that amount of hierarchy had, had continued, we would not have had this expansive economy. So the, the basis of the institutions, you see, changing to the extent, small extent they did, was um, ethics, a change in attitudes towards other people. It's on, unless you define institutions as all social customs, in which case it's a pathology, the institutions are not where it's at. Well, Goldberg's argument, and, and he's specifically defending the United States, uh, the growth in the United States and some of the things, is that there, the, the magic, I don't think he uses the word magic, but I'll just use that here. The magic in what happened was that these institutions, these social these social customs and, and yeah. institutions, broadly speaking, were written down. In fact, I think that's the phrase he says. What the beauty of the American Revolution is that they wrote these ideas down and and confirmed them in you know actual documents that defined what America was. And that's where he kind of places it. That's fair enough, but I think he's referring more to the Constitution yes. than the than the Declaration of Independence and. That's the that's maybe the difference between Jonah and me, uh, be, be, because I think he's referring to both. If I recall, I read well, the book okay. twice this year, so I should remember. But okay, good. I mean, th then if I'll ha I should read the book, but I haven't, I haven't got time really. But not, that's a stupid thing to say. <laughs> I have got time. I'll I'll find time to read. Well, Jonah. he reads the audio book, and it's wonderful to listen to. So uh, you can yeah, give I, that a go. I, I, I should try it. But, but the it's the it's all men are and 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 women dear are created equal. That's the um, that's the central idea of liberalism. The American Constitution is a fine document, and I admire it very much, particularly the First Amendment to it. But it's not. A liberal. Um, it, it put it this way: it, it's it's a structure of governance, which is what it's supposed to be. Um, it's not an idea of equality. And the essential message of Abrahamic religions is that all souls are equal. And this is not true in Hinduism, for example. Um, and it's, it's an extremely powerful idea that didn't really mean anything socially until it was, um, the ante was raised in the 18th century, in 18th century liberalism, in, in this idea that, and, and it kept being cashed in again and again and again. Gay rights, 
the right to marry between gays. That campaign really took off when people started to realize that it was just it was just another case of uh, of equality. That's all. So it's it's um, it's equality that matters. This is something that uh, that. Tocqueville um, said, of course, about the United States, it's it's the it's the desire for equality, which in the sort of Rousseau version <laughs> leads to socialism, and in the Adam Smith version leads to a free market society. Um, you know, in in your book Bourgeois Equality, you, you write that the ethical object should be the the level of a poor person's situation and not her rank. And I have a lot of, you know, left-leaning friends or very, not even left-leaning, like they're, they don't lean anywhere other than they're, they're there. Uh, <laughs> they're not leaning left. They are left. They're not leaving. Uh, they, they are, uh, yeah, and they're, no, they're not leaving and they're very intelligent. Um, but sure, they, they, they put a value on relative, it could be relative poverty, but I think the, the better way of describing it might be that, there is a gap of equality and global equality is down as you as you mentioned earlier but then we have some statistics that the the gains of trade since the 80s have largely gone to those who are the you know the quote unquote greedy capitalists and all of this and yeah. you know um what i asked one of my friends who is probably the smartest person i know who's a pretty good defender of progressivism from a Christian perspective, at least sure. of, of my friends. And he was, his, his kind of response to me was that studies show that happiness is connected to a sense of social cohesion rooted in a strong sense of fair play and that those yeah, factors yeah. impact wealth inequality so that like higher degrees of inequality lead to less happiness. Also, it yeah, leads yeah, the rich to yeah. value themselves and it becomes yeah, like I've, this I, dividing. I've heard this story. So, so what's your, you're sitting with lunch with somebody when they say stuff like that. What do you What do you respond with? I, I say, uh, I, <laughs> I say, you don't want equality to be your um, moral guide here, because you're encouraging envy. You're encouraging the sin of envy. Um, don't covet <laughs> your neighbor's goods or husband's or anything else. It's the, is it the ninth commandment? I forget, or the eighth, something like that. Um, and and it, it does seem to me that this obsession with equality and the constant talking about it is based on an idea that we should be envious of people who are rich. And I think what we should be preaching is not, oh dear, you're justified in feeling angry at, at the rich person next door. We should be preaching, don't covet your neighbor's goods, shut up and be a Christian yourself. So I, and I'm, I'm highly doubtful that this constantly quoted assertion that uh, um, uh, Bernie Sanders called, in practically in every speech, he, he mentions it, that, uh, as you said, uh, most of the gain in the last um, 30 years has gone to the top 1% or 2% or 10% or whatever they have in mind. That's false. 
because the real gain, as I said before, is often in the quality of goods. And um, the, the, if, if real wages, as calculated, are stagnant, they're not, but people are always saying it, but okay, let's go with it. The, the real ability to get stuff has increased. And, and you can, there are all kinds of evidences of this. Um, square feet of housing per capita has gone up in the last 30 years per person. The number of automobiles per capita has gone up. Take a look at TVs so far as entertainment is concerned. They're vastly improved. Take a look at, take a look, take a look at medical care, even available to the poor. It's improved in quality. It's much, it's much better than it was. Some forms of, of, of cancer now are on the run. But um, uh, all kinds of things have improved. So it, it's simply false uh, to, to say what they say. And another falsity is the, the concept of the, the top five or eight, the eight richest people in the world quote unquote control 50% of the wealth. Okay. So I, I know that that's false, but what, what, when <laughs> it's laughable to even think that that's what people, I, I can't yeah. believe people think they quote unquote control. It's like they have a stockpile of cash. And yeah. It's all. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. They, they're thinking of Scrooge McD- McDuck. Yeah. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, yeah. Of course with his, uh, his, uh, steam shovels and piles of money and so forth. And uh, this is a calculation that Oxfam does every year. Oxfam, that, uh, that, that pillar of integrity, <laughs> which has been shown, the, the Oxfam operatives have been shown to solicit prostitution in the countries that they're that that they're working in but okay set that aside every year they calculate oxfam as an english uh, uh, charity um that the top well choose your number the top 50 billionaires in the world if their wealth was shared uh they control again control same word uh more than than uh than the bottom I don't know, 80% of the world or something yeah, right. like that. Yeah. And, and I've made a calculation. In fact, it is, I believe, somewhere in those three books, that if you took the money from all of them and handed it out to the others, it, of course, would improve the others a bit. But it's, it's minuscule by comparison. And it's a one-off gain. It's a one-off gain. It can't be repeated because the same people aren't going to come. Carlos Slim in Mexico is not going to be is not going to come around to be milked again if you've expropriated him. But it it, it the, the magnitudes aren't enough to explain very much. It you you I I would wish that Carlos Slim would give all his money to the poor. I actually do wish that he would do that. I think it would improve his soul. And would help the poor people a little bit, but what really helps them is to make the Mexican economy grow. Um, and for that, you've got to do a lot of things that are much more important than uh, 
than attacking the rich. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, of course, if the now now there there there's there's a kind of addendum to that. If if the rich are using their money to grossly corrupt uh, uh, politics for their advantage, then I I object to it. I'm not in favor of crony um, capitalism. Yeah, well, and it's too bad that that seems to be the 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 mo of. Some of these capitalists, like they innovate yet still, you know, it's like Amazon is a mixture. That's the trouble is like, this is all a mixture of both. And you have to really dig in to figure that's out. Right. That's right. You have to dig in. And and there, there are some of these billionaires who earn their money by uh, uh, working hard and innovating, say Bloomberg, right? Three times mayor of New York. He's a very rich man because he, He's, he's, he's an innovator. And then take Donald Trump, please, <laughs> uh, who's a rich man because uh, he got much of it from his father and then he um, he cheated. And I don't approve of that. I'm not, not a worshiper of the rich. I am of innovators. Yeah. Well, it's funny when Donald Trump was boasting about his riches while he was running for office, suddenly all the leftists were becoming uh, experts in opportunity costs because apparently someone did the calculation. (laughs) (laughs) Someone did the calculation that had he just invested the money he inherited from his father, he would have done better than all the businesses he did. That's right. On the market. That's right. Well, he went bankrupt four times and, you know, all these. So, yeah. Yeah. Where someday, if if the house turns in this election in two weeks, we'll get to see Donald Trump's tax returns <laughs> eventually. Okay, yeah. So it's something to look forward to. You know, you, you talk about something that I found interesting, and I hadn't really thought about it until I read one of your books about it, is the difference between consumptive equality uh, versus just yeah. what we kind of talk about as uh, inequality or material, you know, just immaterial or material inequality. That's right. I haven't worked out a very good terminology for it, and I'd, I'd, I'd like some help on that. And co- consumptive won't do because it means, to, in some contexts, it means uh, um, it means having tuberculosis. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but, but yeah, that's right. There, there is there's inequality of wealth, which is capital, uh, capital stock at any one time. And then below that, there's inequality of income, which isn't the same thing and is more equally distributed than the capital. Okay, capital being claims to physical capital. Right. Now, now as a matter of fact, human capital is much more equally distributed than claims to you know ownership of factories and so forth. So that's one point. But then income, it uh, the the next item in the accounting is much more equally distributed than, than say, financial capital. But then, then consumption, you know, you can only wear one pair of pants at a time. You can have, like, Saddam Hussein, 12 palaces, but you can only live in one palace at a time, and indeed in only one room at a time. So the, uh, the as in your terminology, the consumptive, Equality is much greater than income. And then I think the most important point is that basic or necessary or important consumption is 
much more equally distributed. My friend uh, Don Boudreau points out, John D. Rockefeller didn't have access to pills to help with any depression he might have, uh, whereas the poorest person in the United States can go get a pill if he's got clinical d depression, and it actually helps. So, uh, yeah, there's much more equality than people think, e e significant equality, e equality of things that actually matter. I mean, they, you know, I don't want to get sappy about this. You can say, oh, yeah, the sunsets are free and so forth. And yeah, OK. But but um, look, express it this way. The world was much more unequal in 1800 than it is now. If you want to see inequality, go to the pre-innovism societies where, where the guys with the swords and the land were vastly better off than ordinary folks. And, and so I would, I would make the argument that uh, this capitalism that we keep falling into calling it um, has made the societies less unequal than they were before. Yeah. Well, you know, when you look at pre-innovism, I like that. Uh, innovism, <laughs> it, it rolls off the tongue a little less better than capitalism, but it works. Uh, pre-innovism, you know, that's when the scriptures were written. Uh, yeah. And it it makes me wonder if if the, the time frame that the scriptures were written in were different and it was post-innovism, would Jesus's... Uh, yeah. Uh, admonitions to the wealthy and, you know, warnings yeah. about having too much wealth be different because, you know, it, yeah. it, it was a different, you acquired wealth in different ways. And in the, and in the acquisition of wealth, it, it very well could be a zero sum situation. Whereas now it's not. Indeed. You're exactly right. Uh, up to 1800, the zero sum assumption was not such a bad one. Made a lot of sense. Yeah. Whereas it makes really very little sense now uh, the, because because this this innovistic society has been has been um, gigantically positive sum and that 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 takes away a lot of sins you there was of course a change another attitudinal change in the 17th and 18th centuries moving away from a conception of poverty as inconsequential because um, you'll get pie in the sky when you die, that you should take up your cross in this life because you have an infinite life of, uh, of, of glory if you um, suffer in, in this life. And that idea was really challenged in the 19th century. With, with with people saying, no, no, we've got to make people better off now. And I, I don't quite understand how that fits in, but, but it is a very important ideological change, change in Christianity. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think... I, I think it was Dallas Willard who said that the the whole point of the gospel is not to go to heaven when after you die, but to go to but to get to heaven before you die. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of yeah, but that's a very sophisticated modern view. I'm not so sure it was um, prevalent in the Middle Ages. Yeah, yeah, for sure. 
I, I recently have been posting on our Facebook page uh, for Libertarian Christian Institute uh, some work from humanprogress.org about poverty. And, you know, we, we've talked yeah. here in this conversation about the hockey stick graph where, you know, yeah, we, yeah. we've gone so, so, so high in uh, productivity and wealth as, as sure. a world. Uh, people don't know how how much poverty is being reduced. And there are a lot of people predicting that, you know, absolute poverty, which I think is the below one point or $1 and 90 cents a day level of poverty uh, will be abolished within our lifetime or in the next decade or so is, um, you know, obviously if you set the bar at some level, you'll, you, you can probably reach it. I mean, we could set the bar at $5 a day and that will probably still reach that in the next hundred years. Um, But the, Somebody quoted Jesus said the poor will always be with you, and I'm like I don't think that's what Jesus was trying to make a universal statement about. Yeah, but I mean, are you are you optimistic? Do you think will capitalism will end poverty? Oh yes, and, and in fact, it already has. And and those who are informed, like Hans Rosling and so forth, we we all recognize it. There was a book by an Oxford. Um, Economists called the bottom, the bottom, for, for, for his name right away, but called the bottom billion. And he pointed out that in 1960, population was about 5 billion people, and 4 billion of those were in this absolute poverty. And now we, we, we have 7 billion people and only 1 billion are still in this absolute poverty. And, you know, we need to worry about this bottom bottom billion, but that's a massive transformation. And it's happened basically by allowing people to open um, businesses and make innovations. And, and the innovations don't have to be fancy. They can be just the innovation of moving to a new job and um, so forth at or getting some extra qualifications by going to school or uh, an apprenticeship. That's how the world gets rich, and it's well on its way to getting rich. I don't think it's the next century that we're going to get to $5 a day. I think it's in the next uh, half century, perhaps. Yeah. It'll be way, in fact, it'll be way above $5 a day. I reckon, as I said, the average now in the world is about $30 a day. Um, and that is the income about of per person of Brazil. So think of Brazil as kind of the median um, okay. country in the world. And I can easily say I'm going to about in a few weeks I'm going to going to go to Brazil, a country I, I, uh, that I um, that I love very much. Um, I reckon that it would take about 20 years for Brazil to increase its income by a factor of two. Then it gets up to the up to the level of say Poland, and then another. 20 years and it's up to the level of what the United States is now. So I, I think the future, um, I, as I said before, I think sub-Saharan Africa is on the way out of absolute poverty. So I'm very optimistic. Now, optimism doesn't sell. 
<laughs> if you want to write a best-selling book, tell people that the world is coming to an end. People love to read these books. My friend Bob Gordon did one a couple of years ago uh, that said, oh, innovation is declining. And then I said to Bob, look, it's not declining in India. He said, oh, I don't care. It's declining in the United States. That's <laughs> terrible. And, uh, you know, um, uh, Paul Ehrlich in 1968 or seven or whenever it was said, by now we'd all be starving and and fighting for bread in the streets. And and now India is a grain exporter. <laughs> oh, my goodness, whereas, yeah. Whereas in 67, it was a massive grain importer. So Well, may, maybe all their scare tax if it just made us want to be more innovative, and that's what made it. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't think – I think people just get depressed when they think, oh, my God. You know, there's a there there there's a wonderful passage in um, I think it's St. Paul's, uh, maybe it's to the um, e- Ephesians or something, and he's saying he says, "Look, when I was with you, I worked very hard morning to night. I think he was washing the washing the dishes or something. I worked all the time. I've heard that you people aren't working." Then <laughs> he says, and of course the reason they weren't working is they expected the Messiah to come back at any moment. You know, this is the middle of the first century of these uh, original Christian communities. And he said, uh, someone who doesn't work shouldn't eat. (laughs) Um, I don't know why I brought that up. (laughs) Except to say that, that, that if that uh, this um, uh, th- this gloom that people have is very demoralizing. It means that people stop working and say, "What the hell?" <laughs> it's just so damn silly. But people love to hear that the world is about to collapse. Yeah. Well. It, yeah. You're right. I mean, good good <laughs> he- good news, which is ironic because that's what the gospel is. Good news doesn't. Doesn't exactly. write, it doesn't write headlines. Uh, exactly. People like the doom and gloom because it gets your attention. You know, it's yeah, it's it's it's, it's poverty pornography. That's what it is. It's, <laughs> it's this this delight that people have in hearing that things are going from bad to worse. Yeah. Well, I I think the 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 task before us uh, as libertarians and and as Christians would be to. <laughs> let people know that the world is getting, I mean, libertarians do this pretty well. It's like, Hey, yes. look at, look at the world. The crime rate is dropping dramatically. Sure. Uh, sure. despite the news, uh, you know, people are rising out of poverty, you know, like yep. thir- 30,000 people rose out of poverty today, you know, yep. statistically, yep. you know, there's, there's a lot to complain about and those things should be attend should be tended to, but it's yep. not to be, it's not a doom and gloom situation. It certainly isn't. And yet it's in the interest of the worst kind of, of uh, people in politics like Donald Trump to scare us. That's what he's trying to do in the, in the oh, yeah. run-up to the con- congressional elections. Just one fearful thing after another. Now it's this, um, <laughs> this march of these poor people from Central America that he's, that he's – uh, demonizing yeah it's like 
I, I don't even know. That's that's a whole other conversation. This is like yeah. we gotta find it. Gotta find somebody to 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 scapegoat to make us scared of something something that's probably not even bad for us. It's exa- it's the biblical meaning of scapegoating. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, well, I think I think if we I think you use this phrase if we keep our wits about us we can we can prevail and, yes. and it'll go better. I think we can. So, um, what what's on the horizon for you? I've I know you at least have one book with Art Cardin, um, the the bourgeois deal. Yes, we Art Art and I are almost finished with that book, and we hope that Chicago will publish it, and if not, someone else. And then I've got a book which I'm working on right now, uh, which I'm going to try to get into Yale U- University Press in the next couple of weeks. It's called How to Be a Humane Libertarian: Essays in a New um, Liberalism. And it's got a long introductory section of about eighty pages, and then it's got a lot of my articles, my uh, sort of short opinion pieces arranged artfully. And uh, it's meant to try to persuade people to a libertarian, a humane, a Christian libertarian view. Although in the first page, I say, let's reclaim the word liberal. Our friends on the left are frightened by it because the conservatives have made it into a swear word. So they are willing to be called progressives. And if they don't mind uh, being associated with compulsory sterilization, fine, they can have that. And we can claim back the word uh, that we should have, which is liberal. I'm in favor of that. John Stuart Mill, Bastia, Smith, et cetera, et cetera. Well, and if you explain to liberty-loving conservatives yeah. what the word liberal means, or if you say it, sure, you know, if you say I'm a I'm against illiberal institutions or something like that, exactly. they'll be like, well, what exactly. do you mean? And then you explain it, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm for that too. Yeah, and and and, and you know, and, and I think most Americans are. I think our yeah. our friends, and I do have friends on the left and right. I think they they'll get it <laughs> that. You know, it, it means in at root, it means a society composed of non-slaves. Yeah. If you had to put it in one phrase, it would be that. Well, thank you for being with us to talk about I enjoyed a million it. things, uh, but very things very important to Christian libertarians and to libertarians, and and I hope to more Christians than just Christian libertarians. And I, uh, I, I really appreciate your, your insight, your input, the work you've done in in promoting. Uh, the, the I don't want to, not in a blasphemous way. The good news of capitalism. Uh, Indeed, it's just it's super important and critical that the and and it's it, I don't know. I'm I'm a libertarian for the poor. Yeah, I am too. It's all it's all I'm interested in is the poor. Yeah. So yeah, thanks for joining us. Okay, dear. Uh, it's been interesting and fun. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. 
You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Thank you.